Technology, we often forget, it's built by people. And the ones and zeros don't create themselves. People create the ones and zeros, the products, the software, whatever it is, the hardware. And I think when, as 21-year-olds, we started out, we were really keen to create stuff and make things and ship things. As we've gotten wiser, maybe older, um, we realize it's all about people. Not only is that where the fun and exciting parts are, watching people's careers transform and change and, you know, putting teams together and having them, them win and succeed. That's really what actually makes the best software. Welcome to the season six of Outliers. I'm your host, Pankaj Mishra, and I'm really thrilled to be bringing this edition of Outliers in collaboration with the Times of India. Outliers is a series of freewheeling conversations with the ones who choose to take the road not taken often. It's about the crazy and the curious, those who dare to stand out and stand alone. Keep listening. Entrepreneurship is big in India, and over the past few years, uh, this trend of software as a service and a new generation of companies that are being built in the ecosystem uh, with the model uh, that is SaaS is, uh, you know, is uh, like on, on, on fire. And a lot of people in the ecosystem look up to many companies across the world. They get inspired by their stories. Today, I'm sitting down with Mike Cannon Brooks, who's the co-founder of Atlassian. And it's a company that a lot of people in the Indian ecosystem and elsewhere look up to for what uh, Mike and his co-founder has built uh, close to two decades, uh, over $50 billion worth, you know, taken uh, it to the uh, public markets and created amazing value for everyone including you know investors employees and uh, we thought it would be a great idea to sit down and learn from the journey so welcome to the podcast mike thank you for having me thank you for that uh, uh that glorious intro mike uh, let's start from the start i know you you would have articulated this so many times the origin story i am familiar with the whole uh, credit card, uh, you know, swiping it and, and starting at Lassian. Can you articulate it once for us, if you don't mind, the origin story and what has stayed with the company and with you? Sure, sure. Um, look, we, my co-founder, Scott uh, Farquhar and myself, uh, we're both still the, the co-CEOs of the business uh, almost 20 years on now. We we started the business uh, right out of university. So we were just at the end of our university or, or college uh, degrees. And um, we decided that we didn't want to get quote unquote, a real job. Uh, and instead wanted to try uh, our arm, I get, you know, you know, uh, try for ourselves to start our own company. Uh, it's unusual because we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to start a company, uh, which is terrible advice. And I would not recommend that to anybody. But we, we knew we wanted to start a company and we knew that we were young. So it was a time to try it. And if we failed, we had good university degrees, we'd go get a job somewhere else, you know. Um, so we had about, uh, uh, you know, $10,000. We had a, a, a couple of credit cards and uh, we went and started Atlassian on the back of that. Um, we evolved quite a lot in the first few years about what we were doing and ended up uh, building software applications as we do now. Our um, 
uh, mission is to unleash the potential of every team. And Atlassian makes products and uh, um, practices and all sorts of other things to help teams in large organizations uh, be more efficient and projects, all sorts of things to do with teams. And, uh, and we made software, but you know, the lessons early where we, we, we kept changing until we found what worked uh, for us. We started the business, uh, I should say, I don't know if you said that intro, in Sydney, Australia uh, in 2002. So literally nuclear winter for um, tech, uh, post.com boom. Um, you know, we'd seen all the investments run up and then all the investments disappeared. Um, the, you know, two 21-year-olds in Australia with no experience uh, and the venture capital market having just imploded, we weren't going to get venture capital anyway, so we didn't try to get it. Uh, we built the business on the back of uh, great products and, um, you know, the revenue from customers and continued to grow and invest in the business. Uh, I like to say we were revenue funded and not venture funded. <laughs> and um, that, that first five or six years was hugely formative to our business model. Uh, we are highly capital efficient as a, a software company and always have been. Uh, we've been largely... Uh, profitable to to some definition or, or free cash flow positive generating cash for uh, almost every quarter of our entire lifetime over 20 years um, and we didn't have and um, you know obviously in Australia we have a lot of affiliation for uh, for India and a lot of, of common um, traits uh, we can debate who has the better cricket team at any any <laughs> given point but uh, you know there's a lot of similarities in, in in how we think about the world sometimes and especially when it comes to technology we didn't have any Silicon Valley influence when we started right and so we had to really uh, learn from Silicon Valley in terms of reading and 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 um, things like that but you know make things up in our own in Australia and um, uh, and, and we did things a bit differently because of that. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Great, great launch pad for our conversation now. So, so, so Mike, when you were building Atlassian, what are companies or what their organizations uh, that inspired you? Did, because in Australia, and you are right, when you were building Atlassian, uh, the ecosystem almost did not exist. I mean, I mean, startup, building a startup become fashionable now and it's popular, mainstream. But back then, perhaps it wasn't such a cool thing to do. And then you had this headwind of the nuclear winter, as you described. So when you were building Atlassian, were you looking up to anything? Um, absolutely, yes. I mean, certainly from a U.S. perspective, uh, we've always admired um, an unusual cast of characters when it comes to companies. We, we tend to admire multi-product multi-decade companies that have survived technology transitions. Mm -hmm. So you start looking at companies like Adobe, uh, Intuit. Um, nowadays, you'd throw obviously Amazon and others in, but back then, you know, there wasn't, Amazon wasn't really as thin as it is today in 2002. Um, th those companies, especially in tech, because they've survived technology transition. So what I mean by that is, you know, DOS to Windows, Windows to the web, the web to mobile, like every 10 years, the technology industry hits one of these massive changes. Yes. And, you know, client server to, to PCs, whatever it was, surviving through one of those changes usually means the problem doesn't disappear, but the technology changes and you have to build a business that's able to navigate across that gap. Um, 
Adobe and Intuit are good examples because they both competed heavily against Microsoft, which was always much bigger, but survived and carved out their area, their niche, and are still today fantastic companies 40 years on. Um, Atlassian has a very, very long-term focus. We've always thought very, very long-term. Even now, you know, the two uh, co-CEOs and co-founders, we're uh, 41. So we're still young in terms of our, our potential future career. Absolutely. Um, any company that survived multiple decades in technology has done something special, has some sort of DNA or culture that's there. And we always wanted to survive for many decades. And so, you know, we look to those, those type of companies. Um, there wasn't a lot in the Australian tech industry to, to idolize at that point. Now, uh, much again, like India, we have a very, very healthy and vibrant tech ecosystem that really over the last 10 years, um, certainly over the last five, but over the last 10 years has totally transformed in the number of large companies we have and small companies and startups and venture funds. And it's, it's a very different place now than it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 when it was, uh, you know, the wild west. Yeah, that, that's amazing, uh, Mike. Mike, now let's put uh, a spotlight on the building blocks of Atlassian and, and look at the past two decades and handpick some of the key lessons that you have learned from this journey. Uh, also include things that worked, that did not work. Uh, what has stayed with you as first principle and what you shed? Uh, I know it's a very open question, but it would be good to include a bunch of those. Um, look, I always say there's a few really instructive points in our journey. Um, the biggest long-term learning is, as I say quite a lot, especially internally, technology, we often forget it's built by people. And the ones and zeros don't create themselves. People create the ones and zeros, the products, the software, whatever it is, the hardware. And I think when, as 21-year-olds, we started out, we were really keen to create stuff and make things and ship things. As we've gotten um, wiser, maybe, <laughs> uh, uh, older, um, we realized it's all about people. Not only is that where the fun and exciting parts are, watching people's careers transform and change and you know, putting teams together and having them, them win and succeed, that's really what actually makes the best software, um, in our case, or the best technology more broadly, is is people and diverse teams of fantastic uh, people. Our, our org is all about people um, that trends into culture and talent and growing people and developing people and hiring the best people all around the world. Um, this is the biggest thing that I would say has changed from 20 year old Mike to 40 year old Mike. 20 year old Mike wanted just to write software and solve somebody's problem and create something. And 40 year old Mike would start with the people and hiring and the teams and, and then let them go and create the things. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, look, we're a multi-product company. Atlassian has uh, five to 10 products, depending on how you think about it. Obviously, the Jira family of products is very uh, famous. Yes. Uh, Trello, Confluence, we have a lot of very large products and our Bitbucket is particularly large in India. Um, these products uh, having a family now of products, there was a point where we had one product and we had to choose to move to two. And that was probably one of the most insightful decisions. That was the choice to start Confluence or turned out to be Confluence because it made us a software product company, not a Jira company. And mm. that's changed so much about our DNA over the years. Uh, that was very, very instructive in terms of, you know, we're now a business that thinks about creating software and solving problems for people rather than a single application or a single product. 
Um, uh, going global, I would say, is a big part of our world. So we started all in Australia. Uh, we now have staff all over the world. Um, we opened the Indian uh, R&D office probably, what, three, three and a bit years ago, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and now have more than 800 staff in India. Um, and that is is an example of us, you know, continuing to aggressively move around the world to pursue the best talent we can find, right? Uh, I think we're hiring 300 or so R&D engineers in the next 12 months in India and across the, across the region, um, across all parts of India, I guess. And that, you know, is us taking our global perspective to, to hiring, which has been a big change. It's a big decision to start a second office. And now we have a series of offices and now we've moved into what we call team anywhere or with the pandemic, you know, working remotely, um, we can really access the, the global talent, uh, which has changed the way we look at the world quite significantly. Mike, one more question I had for you, a follow on, on, on globalization is, sure. you know, a few decades ago, uh, people looked at uh, the globalization stories of Toyota and, you know, a lot of Japanese companies, how they went to the US as car companies and, and built a footprint there and, and became truly global and they had their success and failures. Now, we are, uh, you know, and, and Atlassian stories clearly uh, there in, as a globalization case study. From India also, we have seen so many entrepreneurs build products, scale it globally, especially US and Europe. Now, what what has worked and what hasn't for for a company like Atlassian uh, building from Australia? And what are the globalization challenges in in that sense? And what are some of the the most unique things or or things that have worked for you in that journey? Look, we've... Um, I think we have an advantage like some of the Indian, um, I'm not sure you call them startups anymore, growth scaling companies, uh, um, you know, a lot of the, almost all the local tech giants, which I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, are, uh, you know, from Ola to Alliance, Flipkart, you know, all use Atlassian's tools, which is fantastic, right? So in a small way, we're kind of helping the Indian uh, tech, uh, tech scene grow. Um I think we share similar things to having met some of the some of the founders there. When you start outside of Silicon Valley, you have a very different global mindset to start with. Or let's say outside of America, mm-hmm. uh, we've never seen our audience as kind of America or California, and then growing from there. We've seen it as sort of the world to start with, which I think has changed our view. We've always had a lot of customers in Europe. We've always had a lot of cost- customers across uh, Southeast Asia and, and North Asia. And we've always been global. We didn't have to sort of go global. We, we were born global, right? We, we started outside America and we've continued to be so, although America is a very large and important market for us. Um, I think that changes how you approach things. I've always said that one of Alassian's advantages is having a foot in Silicon Valley and a foot outside of Silicon Valley. And there's a lot of amazing things about being in that world that we appreciate. We have a uh, a large office in Mountain View and another large office in, in San Francisco and a lot of employees around California. There's a desire to change the world and create and, and, and um, you know, magic is made in, in that part of the world. 
for sure. And, and we want to inherit some of that magic and, and learn from it. There's also a practicality sometimes that lives outside. You know, Sydney is a large commercial city with banks and insurance companies and logistics and freight and all of the sorts of, you know, large issues. And, and so we have always lived across the Pacific Ocean, if you like, uh, with one foot inside the froth and bubbles. And we're going to, it's a whole new world. We're going to turn it over. We're going to build this new thing. And one foot in the, hey, I just have these problems I need to solve today with the business I have today. As a customer, here's what I want to solve. And that balance between the two has been very powerful for us over time. Uh, we've certainly added a lot of European flavor to that over time. And now in the last three or four years, um, a lot of uh, Indian flavor and, and increasingly in Southeast Asia, we've had offices in Malaysia and Vietnam and other places as well. So trying to get those global perspectives in. We, we're big diversity, big believers in diversity um, at the core level. And that is diversity of thought, right? I'm trying to build products for the, for the world. We have a, a, a BHAG of having 100 million monthly active users, which in enterprise software is a vast number. There's a handful of applications that ever reach that level. And so if I'm going to build applications for hundreds of millions of people, I really have to have voices, views, brains, experiences, um, thoughts from all parts of the world to build that application properly and really? to build it for that audience. And that's it's sort of the way we've always thought because of where we were born. Um, but it turns out to be quite unique if you're competing with largely American-centric uh, companies. Yeah, th this is very valuable, Mike, the, what you shared here. Uh, one more thing which has stayed you know, for, for two decades and which is I, I believe is equally powerful is uh, both of you co-founders. Now, I know sometimes it is underrated, but can you talk a little bit about what has made it work, you know, from outside? Because it seems to be one of the pivotal, you know, important reasons uh, for uh, Atlassian's growth and everything that we are talking about from culture to everything. So can you talk a little bit about your lessons in uh, staying together as co-founders? and a little bit of do's and don'ts. Yeah, sure. Look, we, I think, I think the best, the best analogy is we've kind of grown up together at this point. So the, the person you are at 20 and the person you are at 40 are pretty different people for almost probably anybody in any part of the world and any, you know, life journey that goes on there. And it's no different in a corporate sense. Yes. Um, we were, I think we would both say lucky enough to find someone uh, you know, smart and hardworking and continuing with personal growth throughout that entire journey. And when you've got that with a very even split of responsibility and, um, you know, even reward split, everything's always been very even between us. That, you know, that's a very powerful combination, um, right? I, I, I sometimes say we have, you know, double the CEO bandwidth. So if we each have half the experience, well, we'll still learn faster than anybody else because, you know, we don't claim to be the most experienced CEOs and managers of, of companies in the world. You know, we now have uh, north of 7,000 employees in, in lots of different countries and um, handling all sorts of global issues. We don't claim to have experience in doing all these things. We would be clear that we are able to learn fast we make pragmatic, practical, balanced judgments. And there are two of us to learn twice as fast. So we can catch up to anybody and uh, 
uh, and do that. And we have, you know, we have a team at the top and um, that requires all the elements of any, um, you know, any, any relationship, right? Uh, honesty, trust, you know, there's this good times and bad times and there's, there's uh, you know, largely we're on the same page about stuff, but we've had disagreements and how you work out and solve those. And uh, it's all the sorts of things that co-founders have to figure out. Um, I just think I, you know, well, I would say I got very, very lucky in, in finding Scott and probably took five years to figure that out. And he might say the same thing. Um, and you know, now we're, we're just continuing to do what we do. Uh, so it's been, it's been a really, uh, pleasant journey. And uh, I think for both of us, it's also a lot less lonely, right? Uh, founding companies is often a very lonely business and, um, having, having someone there on the different parts of the journey is, uh, it makes it, makes it different, makes it, it quite a bit more fulfilling, I think. Yeah, that, that is so true, Mike. That is so true. You know, final uh, two, three questions I have. Sure. Uh, Mike, if, you know, people talk about failures in, from, from different, uh, you know, viewpoints. Uh, people talk about startup value of death. Uh, can you put a spotlight on a couple of things that didn't work? And uh, how did you get out of them or I don't know if they were existential but were they uh, can you talk a little bit about those <laughs> uh, long, long list of things that didn't work um, we've, we've tried plenty of stuff that, that <laughs> pick your favorite ones <laughs> um, look cult culturally I think we had a few lessons early with hiring um, again when we started we'd never hired a single person never managed a single person so we, we've we've got all the scars and I think committed all the sins in the book. Uh, we've, we've had to handle our fair share of what I would call brilliant jerk problems where we had people who were technically credibly talented or, you know, very, very good at their job, but just culturally, um, you know, politely we were rubbing people the wrong way, you know, just didn't fit into the team and no one wanted to work with them despite them being amazing at what they did. Uh, a few, very clear examples early on. And we learned that that, you know, that was not a sustainable path for the business. So we've, we've largely avoided those types of people and built around them. And, and that uh, I think has made our culture much stronger. We very much believe in our, our values and culture as a business and in long-term thinking. And you can't think long-term if people don't want to work with their colleagues, you know what I mean? Um, so I think there was a few examples of that early where we actually did that. Uh, we aren't afraid as a business to make hard decisions and take risks and then be clear when they, they didn't work as much. Uh, we were very big in the chat wars that went on. We had a product called HipChat that was doing very well uh, and we re reinvented as a product called Stride. Obviously we had Slack on one side of us, we had Microsoft Teams arrived on the other side and then Facebook Workplace and every, you know, workplace chat became a very, very crowded space very quickly. Hmm. And we have so many opportunities of business. We made a, you know, a clear calculation, which always seems easy in hindsight, that we were going to effectively move out of that space. So we sold Stride to Slack and made a big partnership with them and elegantly, strategically exited the space, let's say. Internally, it was very, very painful, right? You had teams of people who'd been working on these products and cared deeply as much as the founders did. And so it was a real growing moment for the company. Mm -hmm. It was the right decision. 
um, but it was very hard and we had invested a lot of blood, sweat, tears and time into trying to build these things and we had to manage our customers and other things. But those are, you know, those are the risks of a growth company and those are the, the practical um, pragmatic choices you have to make. Um, and I think we've, in both cases, you know, we've made practical long-term focused choices that put culture and the, and the, the team we have first. And we've, we've largely been rewarded for that in the, in the longer term over the long arc of time. Uh, Mike, other thing about building a startup is, you know, these days at least, it is, it is like people say everybody's on a steroid, you know, funding steroid. But, uh, you know, the first few years of building Atlassian, you talked about, uh, perhaps it was bootstrapped as well. And uh, you, you owned a lot of company. You still, both of you own, you know, a, a good chunk of the company. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that uh, in terms of what role did it play in shaping Atlassian in terms of that early uh, bootstrapping, if you may, or your sense of, you know, keeping the company uh, as, as founders with, with you? Because a lot of founders today, by the time they hit IPO, they, they are almost like any other employee. So I have faced that question from many of them. So I'm asking you this. Yeah, look, it's... Um... I think everyone has to go on their own journey, obviously, of that sort of thing. Um, we, you know, in a way we were lucky. We started at a time when there wasn't capital available, so we had to figure out how to get by without it. Um, we're big believers in sustainability in all, all senses. And I think a lot of parts of the heavily venture-driven businesses um, sometimes aren't so sustainable. And that, you know, like you said, it's a steroid uh, look, steroids are useful for certain things in medicine. They're not great if you're going to be an athlete. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's probably similar, right? There's, there's use cases for, for steroids, uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, creams and in hospitals and things that there's not use cases in other places. And I think capital is very similar. If your business does not learn to be sustainable in capital, and, and that's at the simplest level, generating more cash than you spend, right? Um, I think it's very hard to get that discipline back. And we've always had that discipline. To be honest, we've been more afraid about losing that discipline over time than, than on, on the opposite side. Uh, um, and you can see that. And, and that's not just discipline about profitability, I would say. Uh, again, when we opened in India, I've, I've been there a lot of times. I was there on my honeymoon, a big affectation for the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, for the country in general, my wife would, would move there in a heartbeat, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, there were a lot of questions around why, why are you guys opening in India? What's going on? Totally, perfectly reasonable questions to be asked. And, you know, we, we our Indian office is, is largely R&D as a site. We build real products. We have real jobs um, and we see real talent there and we, you know, continue to grow uh, aggressively there, but those are totally valid questions. And I'm hopeful that three, four, five years later, you know, people believe us when we say we're, we're there for the long term. Um, the reason it relates to financial sustainability, I think, is profitability is one thing, continuing to invest is another. One thing our business has always been very good at is continuing to invest in the business itself, as we had to in the early days when we started to make some revenues, we invested them back in the business. And that was the way we had to grow, right? We didn't have outside capital, so we had to use our own capital. Now, every time we did that, we weren't putting it in, you know, Scott or my pocket. We were putting it back into the business and re, 
reinvesting, regambling it right on the next phase of growth. And we've been used to doing that. As we get bigger, we continue to hold our own discipline to continue to do that. So we spend about 35%, a bit north of that, in fact, of revenue on R&D, which makes us one of the highest on the whole of the um, NASDAQ or pretty much any public company exchange. Wow. We believe in continuing to invest in engineering, innovation, R&D, research, whatever term you put on it. And that's a competitive advantage for us as a business. It always has been. And that discipline to, to know where you invest, where your business grows, what it is in the long term has, has really, really helped us. Um, that's part of the reason why we, we started the office in India as we continue to look for more uh, engineers and, and R&D staff to, to grow the business. Uh, you know, you've got some of the best talent in the world there and that's, that's why we're there in the first place. Uh, but it's about that continuing investment. Uh, I, I hope we're still spending 35% of revenue on R&D, you know, 10 years from now. That, that'll be a huge achievement uh, to, to continue that discipline. Amazing, Mike. Amazing. You know, we will wrap this in like three three minutes and, and I'm being greedy with questions. Sure. Please bear with me. Uh, Mike, what do you make of the Indian SaaS industry itself? And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you com- you compete as a company with some of them. We have seen uh, not just Zoho, but but Freshworks and, and, and a generation of new companies coming out of India in SaaS. When you look at that as an industry or a bunch of companies like Freshworks and others, uh, what do you make of, of of it? Can you can you share some of your views on the, on the same? Um, look, I've I've only good words to say about uh, the the. Um, I guess I, I would say I know the tech industry in India more broadly uh, than I do specifically the SaaS industry, uh, but I don't know there's a line between them. I think what is similar about the SaaS industry in India is similar to the SaaS industry in Australia. It's in the SaaS, you know, uh, market, the, the, the group of companies, uh, some of the tech industry broadly is focused on India as a consumption market. And if you think about Flipkart or something like this, right, it's a, there's the customers are within India. Mm-hmm. When you're in SaaS, you, you have to think much more about your customers being global, right? Australia doesn't have a big enough market for us to sell our software to just Australia, so we have to think globally. I, I think you see a similar dynamic in, in the Indian SaaS uh, businesses. Um, I think they're doing very, very well and building really world-class applications. I think the exciting thing about where the, uh, the entire SaaS industry is at the moment is you can find fantastic applications from all parts of the world. And that democratization of the technology and creation is, is what's really exciting. As a, as a customer, you see, you know, whether it's Spotify from Sweden or Shopify from Canada or, you know, uh, Atlassian from Australia, whatever the company is, uh, it doesn't really matter where you start. There are fantastic engineers, there are customers all around the world on the internet and um, it's exciting as a customer to see all this, this innovation being created. Yeah, that's amazing, Mike. Uh, Mike, is there a science fiction view of uh, what you're building? Uh, like really wild view of products that you're building today or the company that you're building today. Is there a science fiction view uh, that you can share? Um. I don't know if it's a science fiction view. I think we are, look, I believe we're in the early innings of 
um, and I can use that equation with an Indian audience. Um, we're, we're very early in the, in the innings of how SaaS and technology is going to change knowledge work. And, mm -hmm. and by that, I mean the sort of work where people sit at a computer and do something uh, uh, work-wise. I think we had office applications, uh, Word, spreadsheets, those sorts of things, which changed some aspect of that world. Um, and then I think it stagnated for a bit. And I think we're just seeing with the internet, with always on connectivity, people working remotely, real-time applications, um, AI to some extent, that efficiency of productivity that started with, you know, factory productivity, right? Can I get more widgets out of my factory faster? Mm -hmm. When you move to knowledge work, that's a much more subtle, nuanced, complicated thing to define, right? Am I getting more creative, more creative output, which is like, ah, oh, how, do, how do I think about, you know, my, that's not necessarily if I'm a marketing agency, you know, generating more ad campaigns. It can be the ad campaigns are higher quality or they're more impactful or they, they resonate with people better or whatever it is. Creativity and knowledge work is very hard to measure the efficiency of. I, I think we're starting to extend, you know, the, the, the brains and the tools and the computers and the people, if you talk it as sci-fi, are starting to blend a bit more, <laughs> much as you would say maybe robots in a factory and factory workers are starting to, to work together to build the car or whatever it is. Uh, I, I think you're starting to see some aspects of that in knowledge work, productivity, creative work. And that's really fascinating. I don't think the computers will just take over. I'm not one of those AI sort of fearful people, but I think it will really augment the ability of people to do creative knowledge work and how fast they can do and what quality they can do, how quickly they can test their ideas, for example, and how much they can do that with people all around the world that they may never have met, which is in itself a pretty sci-fi thing. Uh, yeah. Martin, you know, sent all of our staff home in the pandemic on March the 9th last year, all over the world, about 5,000 people went home and we've now hired, I think about a third or more of the company at this stage. So a couple of thousand employees wow. have never been to an office uh, a year and a half later. And some number of those have never even met another Atlassian in person, yet they've been hired and paid and are doing meaningful jobs. There's a weird world if you take that forward 10 years where you've never met your colleagues. Like, I don't think it, we need to work out human connection. Those things are all very, very important. But from a pure sci-fi, you know, lens, um, knowledge work can be distributed and virtualized in, in really fascinating ways. So we'll do it faster and also, you know, more independently around the world. Um, it's a good question. I don't know if it's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It, it, it was exciting. It was a thrilling answer. Mike, if there is one thing you would change if you were to start again, uh, what would that be? Or maybe more than that. I don't know. Uh, one thing I would change if I was starting again. Look, it's very hard to say and answer those type of questions. <laughs> Obviously, any mistakes we've made, I wouldn't have made, but then I wouldn't have learned from them either. So I don't know if the sci-fi book of parallel worlds, we would have ended up in a better spot or not if I'd never made those mistakes. Uh, look, I think I would have continued to back my own judgment and Scott's judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the things that entrepreneurs are is inherently, uh, I think the best entrepreneurs are certain of themselves and uncertain of themselves at the same time. <laughs> they, they take good feedback and they're not blindly following some sort of path. You know, they listen to 
customers or stakeholders and they keep updating their views and changing their views, et cetera. But that makes them inherently a little bit uncertain as well because they're not entirely confident on their own views. Um, I think if we had trusted our, our guts and abilities even more than we perhaps did, we might have just moved a little bit quicker at different stages and continued to uh, swing big. I think in the last few years, we've really uh, making bigger and bigger swings as a business as we you know, do that. And maybe we could have done that in year five instead of year 15. Arguably, we've always invested quite a lot and, and kind of driven quite fast, but, you know, we could have maybe driven faster. I'm not sure. It's, it, that's why it's hard to answer. Uh, we might have just crashed uh, if we did that. But, um, yeah, something around learning quicker. That, that's a great answer, Mike. I mean, believe me, it's, it's a great answer. And uh, final question now. Why are you still an entrepreneur? And, and don't mind my open question. What I'm try, trying to understand is you started when you were in early 20s. You are now in early 40s. Uh, what are you seeking from entrepreneurship? People talk of serial entrepreneurship. People talk of building things, moving on. I'm just trying to understand why are you an entrepreneur and why you continue to be so? Uh it's a hard question. I think um, entrepreneur is um, an interesting term because it implies you take some idea and you build a business around it. I, while I would characterize myself, I guess, broadly in, in communicational terms to, as an entrepreneur, I, I'm a creator. I like building things. And I, I think there's as much scope to build things inside Atlassian as there is in other places, right? And so while it's not sort of zero employees to one employee at Atlassian, the entrepreneur, you know, the starting new things, I would say that we as a company continue to break ground and build things. We're not a static company at all. In fact, we're quite dynamic in the boundaries of the company and what we're attempting to do and our ambitions. Uh, and that's what keeps me excited because we're still building things, right? We've got more new applications being built than we almost ever have. And a lot of our existing you know, applications and, and software is is changing very rapidly and, and finding new markets and new customers and those new customers give us new ideas and we continue to build on that. So uh, I think I just enjoy the creation process. Um, you know, we're making a big business. We've, we've passed 200,000 customers, enterprises, um, you know, tens of millions of people use our software on a monthly basis and that's a pretty big impact to have, but I still feel incredibly bullish that we can have a bigger impact in the future. And so, I don't know, some part of that is exciting and, and, and um, gets me to turn up every day. Um, and I, I'm lucky enough to get to work with an amazing group of people that um, are both fun to work with and, and great human beings and also want to kind of change the world in their own way. And so it's, um, I, have a, I have a fantastic job. I have no, no problem showing up for work every day. Amazing, Mike. This was such a fun conversation. I'll be honest with you. Uh, when I started this conversation, I was like, okay, is this going to be uh, a dry business conversation? But, but there's so much of color and, and so much of amazing insights that you brought. I'm, I'm so grateful we had this, Mike. Hey, no worries. I've, I've never been accused of being dry. <laughs> so uh, look, I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the, uh, for the chat.